Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. I'm Steve Shepherdly, the engagement pastor here at church. I'll be bringing the message this morning. As the engagement pastor, I want to be clear about my job title. Uh, I am not responsible for all arranged marriages at church. <laughs> so <laughs> please do not send me emails about that. I do not respond as Yenta from uh, Fiddler on the Roof. That's not my job. Uh, but glad to be here with you all this morning. It's great to worship. Uh, worship was great this morning. I feel like we've already had church. We've sung the gospel to each other. Is That's good news, and it's good to sing with you all this morning. But we are going to have a sermon, and <laughs> so that's coming next. We're going to continue in our sermon series in the book of Hebrews. We're in Hebrews 12 today. And sometimes when you open your Bible and you start to read your Bible, how many of you had the experience where it seems really clear the Lord is really making clear to you what he's saying. You read the Bible and it's like, I see God's grace. I see his love. I see his mercy. I see his power being described here, or it's clear like what God is calling me to in life. There are times when you read the Bible, it's really clear. There are other days when you open your Bible and you read it and you're like, what did I just encounter? I'm not sure what this is saying. I'm not sure what this is getting at. And it leaves you with a little bit of confusion. And that's kind of what's going on in Hebrews 12. It's a dense text, the passages that we're going to work through this morning, they're not easy to understand unless you get inside the text and kind of understand what's going on. It's like uh, uh, any movie that you watch, uh, like uh, Star Wars or Lord of the Ring, you know, these trilogies that can kind of uh, build up over time. There are these climactic scenes. The Death Star, uh, either one of them that blows up. When that blows up, clearly it's a big deal, but you don't understand the backstory and why that matters. If you've not watched uh, like, you know, the first Star Wars movie that came out when I was a young lad, um, the, the, the Death Star blows up. But if you've not watched the whole movie, you haven't gotten into the world, you don't know why that matters. You just see a big sphere explode, which is cool, right? But there's more to it than just a sphere exploding. There's a whole story that makes sense of that. Or Lord of the Rings, when Gollum falls into Mount Doom, into the lava, this ugly creature <laughs> falls into the lava. If you've not watched the series, you don't know why that matters. And sometimes when it comes to the Bible, we have to get into the text, get into the weeds, get into the thick of it to understand the message and know what's going on. How many of you know that the Bible is for you? Yes? Amen? We appreciate that the Bible is for us. But the Bible was not written to us. It was written to people who lived thousands of years ago. So if we want to know what it means for us, we have to first understand what it meant to them. And if we understand what it meant to them, then we can see what God is saying for us. And so we want to do that today with, uh, with Hebrews uh, chapter 12. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you have let us know who you are. But Lord, we also thank you that your word just doesn't reveal information about you, a set of truths about you, Lord God. You have also revealed to us what you have done for us in Christ Jesus. The amazing work to redeem us, to save us, to forgive us and promise us hope and eternal life and to be at work in us even now. Pray that you would help us to hear from your word today. Pray that your word would be clear. May we find hope and joy as we come to know you as we come to praise you as our unchanging and holy God and as our gracious God. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So what we want to do to, this morning is kind of track with the flow of Hebrews 12. We're going to have, you can't just say, well, let's read the passage and talk about it a little bit. It's just too dense to not get into the weeds and understand what's going on so we can really see what the text has to say for us. So chapter 12, verse 1 starts with a very strong exhortation. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. What that means in context is that the author of Hebrews is writing to people who are Christian, 
but they had formerly been Jewish. And at some point after becoming Christian, they started experiencing lots of intense pressure to abandon Christianity and to go back to Judaism. And so the author has said in a number of places, hold fast your faith in Jesus. Don't give up your faith in Jesus and go back to Judaism. Here he's saying, run the race with endurance. Hold fast your faith in Jesus. Run this race race, holding fast your faith in Jesus. Don't give up your faith in Jesus. Don't go back to Judaism because you'll miss out on all of the riches that we we are given in Christ Jesus. So he wants to say, run the race with endurance. Hold fast your faith in Jesus. But then he wants to give the original audience reasons to run the race reasons to hold fast their faith in Jesus. He doesn't just give them this command or this exhortation, run the race with endurance, hold fast your faith in Jesus and leave them there. He gives them reasons to hold fast their faith in Jesus and to run the race with endurance. Number one, this is what Brooks preached on last week. Uh, This is Hebrews 12, uh, the first half of the chapter, verses three through 17. Run the race with endurance because when you suffer for your faith in Jesus, God is training you. In those verses, it said, God disciplines those he loves. And that's not discipline in the sense of punish. That means God, you know, when you train for a, a, an athletic kind of event, that's a form of discipline, self-discipline. You're training yourself. And in suffering, God can train you for righteousness. And in your suffering, it's a sign that God loves you. God disciplines or trains those whom he loves. So when you suffer for your faith in Jesus, he's saying to the original audience, Run the race with endurance because as you suffer for Jesus, this is a sign God loves you and he's using that suffering for good. So don't give up the race. Secondly, what we want to look at today, these are the two points we'll talk about today. Uh, Continue to run the race with endurance because Jesus has made a better covenant than what came in the Old Testament. What came in Judaism was good, it was from God, but don't go back to that covenant because God has promised a covenant that is even better. Jesus has provided that covenant. So hold fast your faith in Jesus and run the race with endurance because Jesus has made a better covenant. And then finally, run the race with endurance because Jesus has brought an unshakable kingdom. Jesus has brought an unshakable kingdom. So I encourage you to take out a Bible. Uh, There's some in the pews close by. Have your Bible app open if you have a Bible app and we'll dig into Hebrews 12 together. So let's start Hebrews 12 verses 18 through 24. We want to talk about how Jesus has made a better covenant. Why run the race? Why hold fast your faith in Jesus? Well, because Jesus has provided a better covenant. Verse 18, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So again, sometimes the Bible isn't clear right up front. We have to get into its world and understand what it's saying. When we drop right in here to verse 18, where it starts and says, for you've not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. Do you know what he's talking about right away? It's not self-evident what he's talking about right away. The original audience would have understood that. They're thinking immediately of Mount Sinai. They're thinking immediately of this mountain 
where God descended and met with his people, Israel, on Mount Sinai to make a covenant with them. So what we're talking about here, the author is talking about two mountains and two covenants. There's Mount Sinai, where God made a covenant with Israel through Moses. And then he's talking about Mount Zion, which is heaven, this heavenly kingdom, the heavenly Jerusalem. It's a covenant that Jesus has made with his people. He's talking about two mountains and two covenants. And he wants to say the first mountain and the first covenant was good. God was present with his people, but it left people in fear in the presence of a holy God. Now there's Mount Zion, this heavenly kingdom that's provided a new covenant by Jesus, and it leads to God's presence, but God is there and we're able to celebrate and have joy in his presence. So let's talk about these two covenants. Let's talk about these two mountains. He wants to compare them. So Mount Sinai, again, God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. And just after that, he he walks them through the desert to Mount Sinai where he meets with them. God's presence descends upon the mountain there as he makes a covenant with them. And throughout the Old Testament, it's really clear, especially in books like Exodus, what God's point is here. He says, I will make this covenant with you. And as I give you these laws, I give you these commands, if you obey my laws and if you worship me, I will dwell with you. So God descends upon the mountain in his presence and then says, here's my covenant and my covenant is given to you so that I can live among you. He doesn't just come to give the covenant at the mountain and then leave. The point is that he's coming in his presence to make this covenant and then he says, now I will live among you and I will provide for you and I will make you a blessing to other nations. God's promising his presence there at the mountain And he's promising provision and then to turn Israel into blessing to other nations. So this is a good thing. Mount Sinai, God's covenant is a good thing because he's promising his presence. Ever since Genesis 3, where humans sinned, the first time humans sinned, it causes a separation between humans and the presence of God. And what God is saying here at Mount Sinai is, I'm restoring my presence to you. I will live among you, my people. And this is good news. But it's also twinged with sobriety. Look at the language here. God makes this covenant. He provides his presence and he's going to provide for Israel as he lives among his people. But look at verse 18. It starts out and says, this is a fiery, a dark place. Uses the word gloom to describe it and tempest. It's like a stormy place. Verse 19, Israel says, God, please stop speaking. We can't bear any more messages. The voice of a holy God as he's present and he's speaking is unbearable to a sinful people. In verse 20, the place is made so holy, the mountain is so holy that if animals come and touch the mountain, they then take on some of God's holiness. And if they then wander among the people, they're dangerous. Their very presence among the people, if they've come in contact with a holy God, his holiness kind of comes with them. And then it's dangerous for for sinners to come in contact with the animals. And so the command is kill any of these animals that have come in contact with the mountain. That's how holy God is. And that's how sinful people are. And that's how dangerous it, it is when the two come together. And so they're afraid. Moses Moses was so close to God. Moses heard from God. And even at times, Moses' face was able to reflect the glory of God because he was so close to God. And yet even Moses, in verse 21, is afraid. He's afraid of God's presence. What's going on here is that there's good news. God is going to restore his good and his giving, generous presence 
to the people of Israel. That's the good news. But they can't enjoy and celebrate the good news because God is coming in the fullness of his holiness, the fullness of his beauty, his truth, his goodness, his righteousness, and his majesty. And a sinful people, when they come before a holy God, they can't just say, hey, we're here, it's all good. They are in, in fear as their sin encounters the presence of a holy and a righteous God. Sin cannot stand in God's presence. Do you remember being a kid? and ever doing anything wrong, and you're in a different room of the house than your parents, and you hear this faint noise like, I think they just heard what I did. And your parents start to come close. Do you remember that feeling? I remember one time I threw a rock and hit my brother Paul in the head. I regret that. I was terrible to my brothers. I stabbed one of them with a pitchfork. I don't know why. I, I think I was four at the time. I don't know why I was allowed to have a pitchfork. I think that was an oversight. It was an accident that was not intentional. And I wasn't trying to be angry. I was like, what happens if I poke somebody with this? And I found out. And ever since then, I've regretted it because my brother that I stabbed has saved my life in a number of occasions. There was a day I was out in the road as a toddler, and he's the one that came out and grabbed me out of the road so I wouldn't get hit by a car. So he's been so good to me, and I was so mean to him. So what does that have to do with this sermon? Let's backtrack and figure it out. There it is. Okay. So in the presence of our parents, we can have fear uh, when we've done something wrong. How much more so when we come before a holy and a righteous God? This isn't just a a parent who's a, a sinner like you and me who has their flaws and foibles. Coming before the presence of a holy God, there's a sense of fear as we are honest with our sin and we don't want to bring our sin into his presence. There's a sense of fear. But let's look at the second mountain, Mount Zion, which is heaven Uh, the heavenly Jerusalem or heaven itself. God is present there. Jesus, again, in this new covenant, there's still presence. God is present with his people in heaven. God is there. But there's joy. There's joy. In verse 22, it talks about the angels gathering together in a festal gathering. Have any of you had a festal gathering in the last five years? If you invited people, here's an Evite, it's to the festal gathering. We don't use that language. But in Greek, what it's referring to is a joyful celebration, often around a feast. Uh, During the the Olympics, they would have had these kind of festal gatherings. They would use the same Greek word to describe those joyful celebrations. What's happening here is at Mount Zion, at the new covenant, because of what Jesus has done, we get to enjoy God's presence, but no longer in fear, in joyful celebration. We enjoy God's presence in joyful celebration, no longer in fear. And this is really, really good news. So what's the author saying to the original audience? I know you're Christians and you come from a Jewish background and you're experiencing a lot of intense pressure to go back to Judaism. I know that. I get that. That's hard. But don't go back to Judaism. Judaism is good. It's from God. But Judaism has blossomed and flourished into Christianity. And Christianity, the life of Jesus and his life, death, and ministry is the full fruit of Judaism. So don't go back to Judaism with its old covenant, which was good, but it's not perfect. It's not complete. Keep your faith in Jesus. Continue to run the race with endurance. Hold fast your faith in Jesus because he's brought a new and a better covenant. Don't go back to Judaism. Now, what's the message for us today? There are a lot of different things we can take away. This is what we'll focus on for our purposes this morning. Most of us aren't really tempted away from Jesus by Judaism. Most of us aren't tempted to stop placing our faith in Jesus. We have all kinds of things that cause us to sometimes struggle to trust the Lord, to trust Jesus, but it's usually not Judaism. That's like the prime kind of target that's like, oh, maybe I'll go back to Judaism. Uh, In fact, some of us, if we read about this account 
of God encountering the people of Israel at Mount Sinai, that experience itself, it's not like, oh, that's tempting. I want to believe that instead. We look at that and we're like, this holy God is inducing fear. I thought God was love. What's going on with it? Like holiness seems hard sometimes in our culture. The fact that God is holy and would be holy to such an extent that it would cause us to have fear. People in our culture, sometimes us, we can struggle with that concept. Or there's a second issue we can struggle with. We can say the God of the Old Testament seems holy and he's angry over sin. And there's this fear that people have in his presence. But then the God of the New Testament is supposed to be loving. He's forgiving. He's merciful. These two seem like two different gods. I don't know that I can trust the God of the Bible because these two pictures of God seem inconsistent. You ever struggled with that? I've had lots of students come into the downtown church when I used to work to the downtown, work there who'd say, I'm struggling with these pictures of God. But if we look carefully, what we'll see is that there's really good news here. There's really good news, both in the old covenant and especially in the new covenant. So first of all, a holy God is good news. We need a holy God because a holy God restores us, uh, rescues us from moral meaninglessness. A holy God rescues this world, rescues us from moral meaninglessness. There are a lot of people over the last several years, decades, uh, there's been a growing sense of unbelief. People don't believe in God. It's not that everyone's an angry atheist running around like uh, Stephen Hawking or uh, Hitchens or Dennett. It's not that everybody's an angry atheist. There are just a lot of people who find belief in God kind of irrelevant. They don't see the point. And for some people, they're like, what's the, well, what's the point of all of this holiness? Does, do we have to have a holy God? He seems kind of scary or frightful anyway. So what's the necessity? But as people take seriously their unbelief, as they really think about not believing in God, there's some pesky questions that come up. Pesky questions like, if God does not exist, and if God is not holy, what ground and foundation do we have to say that human rights are important? If God does not exist, and is not pure and holy and righteousness, righteous in his very being, what reason do we have to say that racism is wrong? What reason do we have to say that injustice is wrong, that abuse is wrong? There's this pesky question. I've had a lot of students ask that question. Uh, I'm struggling with belief in God, but one thing, I, as much as I might struggle with belief in God, I'm struggling to not believe, because if God doesn't exist... Why does any of this moral truth matter? Why should we love one another? Why should we fight for justice? Why should we fight for treating people well? If God doesn't exist, the world does not seem to make sense morally. And that really seems to be a hard thing for us. So I'll put it this way. Uh, some people, some scholars who don't believe in God have tried to find ways to say, well, um, we have to account for why we have these moral desires, desires for things like justice or desires for things like goodness. How do we account for that? So some evolutionary ethicists, what they'll say is, well, natural selection has hardwired you and me to think that certain things are morally right. Because if we think that certain behaviors are morally right, we'll do them. There's this pressure to actually do them. But at the end of the day, those things aren't necessarily morally right. Natural selection has, heart, has kind of duped us to think they're morally right so that we'll do them, but really they just make us survive better as a species. And what they'll say is there is no ethical, ethical right or wrong. There are only things that help us survive better as a species, and natural selection has duped us or lied to us to cause us to think those are morally right so that we'll do them, and we'll survive better as a species. Now, if you think about your life, if you've experienced real injustice, 
in your life or somebody that you know has experienced something deeply wrong. Maybe they've been uh, abused or mistreated in a serious way, or maybe you have, and somebody comes to you and says, look, I'm sorry. Uh, at the end of the day, we may not like what happened, and we you know, might in our culture call it ethically wrong, but ultimately it's not ethically wrong. It was just a missed opportunity for the survivability of the species. Does that sit right with you? Does that sit right with you? It does not. And it's because God exists and has wired us. Somebody's wired us and it's God. He's hardwired us to value righteousness at some level. And when righteousness is not attained, we feel like that's meaningless. We feel like something's wrong in the world. We long for moral meaning. And the good news is God exists and in his holiness, there's a reason that we can trust that moral meaning. There's a reason that that we can say God exists and my desire for moral meaning is satisfied in him. That's good news. That's good news in a world where everything feels like it's going in the direction of meaninglessness. That's good news. But a second thing we want to talk about is that this holy God not only rescues us from moral meaninglessness, but he is unchanging and he is gracious. It's not that God is holy in the Old Testament and then all of a sudden switches gears and is loving and gracious in the New Testament as if he's, he's struggling with two personalities or he's inconsistent. In the Old Testament, God woke up on the wrong side of the bed. And in the New Testament, God woke up on the right side of the bed. It's not that way. God is unchanging in his character. He's unchanging in his holiness and he is unchanging in his grace. So let's come back to this passage. So again, Jesus provides this covenant where believers can gather in heaven, the heavenly Jerusalem. And as they gather there in joyful assembly with God, look at what it says about God. One of these verses, uh, which verse is it? I think it's verse 22. It says, in heaven, God is the judge of all. He is the judge of all. It's actually verse 23. The judge of all. How can God be the judge of all? What equips him? to be the judge of all. It's precisely his holiness. He can judge people and is in a position to judge them because he is holy. God in the, in the, in the new heaven and in the new Testament with this new covenant, he has not shed his holiness. He's unchanging. He continues to be holy, but something has changed, right? Because in the old covenant, God is holy and he's present with his people, but there's fear. In the new covenant that Jesus has brought, God is holy and he's present and there's able to be joyful celebration. What has changed? It's not God who has changed. It's that God has sent Jesus to change you and to change me so that we can be righteous and stand in the presence of a holy God. An unchanging God, a holy God who never stops being holy, has sent his son Jesus to die for your sins, to die for my sins, and then to give us the perfect righteousness of Jesus so that we can enter into the presence of a holy God in joy and in celebration instead of fear. Is that not good news? God doesn't change. He changes us by grace. He sent Jesus to change us. And this is really, really good news. How is it that God is able to make it possible for us to enter into his presence. Let's look at this. It's the last verse here that we've read for this section. It's verse 24. Jesus has brought a new covenant. He's the mediator of a new covenant. And we've come to a mountain where there is a sprinkled blood of Jesus that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Does that make a lot of sense right up front? It does not make a lot of sense right up front. My daughter is three years old. I was putting her to bed last night and was talking with her about God. And she asked some questions about God. And she's like, tell me more about God. And 
I did not start by saying, honey, uh, Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. (laughs) That's not where I started with my three-year-old. And it's because that's really dense language. The original audience would have known what that meant, but we struggled to get into it. So let's talk about what that means. So the blood of Abel, uh, Abel was one of the sons of Adam and Eve, the first humans that Genesis 1 describes. Adam and Eve had had these two sons at first, uh, Cain and Abel. And Cain and Abel make offerings to the Lord. Abel gives of the best to the Lord makes an offering to the Lord of the best of what he had. Cain makes an offering to the Lord, but he doesn't give his best to the Lord. And so God has respect for Abel's offering, but he does not have respect for Cain's because Cain has held something back. And then Cain realizes this. Have you ever been jealous? Cain is jealous because God respects Abel's offering. And in a fit of jealous rage, he murders his brother. Many of you know this story. Cain murders his brother. So God comes up to Cain and says, Cain, where's your brother? And Cain says, I'm not my brother's keeper. And then God says this, and this is the real point that, that matters for our passage. God says to him, the blood of your brother Abel cries out to me from the ground. The blood of your brother Abel cries out to me from the ground. What that means is in Jewish culture, they believe that life was in the blood. Life was in a person's blood. Life was in the blood of animals as well. So life is found in the blood. And that's God's way of saying, your brother's lifeblood is no longer flowing through his veins. You have unjustly and wickedly taken his life and his blood is spilled upon the ground. He's dead. And he's he's dead uh, from unjust and wicked sin. And now his blood is crying out for your judgment. His blood speaks a word of judgment for your sin and against your sin. And ever since Adam and Eve has sinned, all of us have continued to walk in sin. All of us have struggled with sin. And all of our sin deserves judgment. Ever since sin into the world, judgment has been the marching order. Judgment has been deserved. But finally, Jesus come, his blood is shed, and his shed blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood spoke a word of judgment. And all of us are under judgment. Jesus' blood, though, speaks a word of forgiveness, a word of grace over your sin and my sin so that we can stand in the presence of a holy God. And this is good news. There's so much that we can't trust in this world and in this life. We can struggle to trust politicians. We struggle to trust the media. We struggle to trust businesses. We struggle to trust the latest opinions. There are all kinds of things that we cannot trust. And that's been especially hard this last year, right? (laughs) But also, don't you know it's hard to trust yourself? If you're honest with yourself, when I'm honest with myself, I know that my desires can be really fickle. And one day I can desire one thing, and there are ramifications for what that means for my family. I chase after certain desires. And then the other day, another day I have different desires, and I switch gears, and everybody else around me is trying to adjust. Like, why is dad chasing after this and then chasing after that? There's lack of consistency. Sometimes dad makes sacrifices for these things that he's chasing after. Oh, now I'm going to switch gears, make sacrifices for these things. My fickleness can lead me in all kinds of directions. I can't even trust my own heart at times. But in a world when there's very, very little trust you can trust, we can trust the character of an unchanging God. We can trust the character and love of a holy and unchanging God and a gracious God. So I encourage you, in the midst of a world where it's hard to trust, know what to trust, take a message here from the book of Hebrews and trust the character of this unchanging God who is also gracious, an unchanging God who is holy and loving. 
We need him to be holy so that there are standards of goodness in the world and we don't devolve into moral meaninglessness. But we also need him to be gracious because every single one of us has fallen short of his righteousness. And thank God for Jesus, that he sends his son Jesus to wash us of our sin so that we can enjoy the presence of God in joyful celebration. Well, a second reason to run the race with endurance, a second reason to hold fast faith in Jesus, the author talks about this here as we start to close. This is Hebrews 12, verses 25 through 29. He wants to say, hold fast your faith in Jesus, keep running the race with endurance because Jesus has brought an unshakable kingdom. Jesus has brought an unshakable kingdom. Let's start in verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So let's jump into this passage and understand what's going on. So it says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. This refers to Jesus all throughout Hebrews. There's emphasis on the fact that Jesus is speaking. He has spoken. There are prophets of old who spoke, but Jesus has come and spoke a message. Let's trust what he has said. So it's referring to Jesus who is speaking. Don't refuse him. Don't reject Jesus. Don't abandon your faith in Jesus and go back to Judaism. Trust what Jesus has said. And then he gives a reason. For if those in the Old Testament did not escape when they refused God who warned them on earth, God was present with Israel, taught them what to do. God warned them, but they didn't always listen to them and they were, and they were judged for that. He says, if God judged Israel when they refused God's voice on earth, much, how much less will we escape if we re- reject Jesus who warns us from heaven? Saying, hold fast your faith in Jesus, because if you reject Jesus, there's judgment to come. You'll miss out on the blessings that Jesus affords, the eternal life that Jesus affords. It says, at that time, God's voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. What's going on here? This is a way of saying, uh, shaking is uh, always a symbol of God's judgment, in, or often a symbol of judgment in the Old Testament. God shakes the heavens and the earth, and that's a sign of his judgment. God shakes the foundations of the earth sometimes in the Old Testament. That's a sign of his judgment. When Jesus died on the cross, there was a what? Say it out loud. Earthquake. It's a sign of this is a time where something like judgment is happening, uh, so these, the shaking of the earth is always a sign of judgment, but things that endure through the shaking are things that have passed through judgment. They're able to endure and pass through judgment. It's like sifting. Uh, if you're ever baking, you know, sometimes you sift flour, or if you're, if you're a parent and you have one of these blessed things called a sandbox in your backyard, occasionally you have to sift things out of the sandbox. This is one of the wonderful moments of parenting. And uh, things that remain are things that last through the sifting. And so this language of shaking in the Old Testament is language of God judging things and only things that can pass through judgment remain on the other side of the shaking or the sifting. And so the message for the original audience was, don't go back to Judaism because only those who continue in their faith in Jesus receive this unshakable kingdom. Only those who hold fast their faith in Jesus 
pass through judgment themselves, and then inherit a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Jesus at his death and resurrection has promised a new heavens and a new earth that cannot fade, that cannot pass away. But Jesus' death and resurrection also allows you and me to have a place in that new heavens and new earth. We're allowed to pass through judgment and to experience that new heavens and the new earth because of what Jesus has done for us. If it's up to your good deeds, up to my good deeds, up to our ability to make ourselves holy enough, no one will make it through the sift. No one will make it through the sifting, but Jesus has come to die for our sins and then to give us his righteousness so that we can pass through judgment. So the author is saying to the, the Hebrews, don't go back to Judaism because the only way to make it through the sifting is to believe in Jesus and hold fast your faith in Jesus. And what's a message for us today? I think there are two things as we close. First, first of all, hold fast your faith in Jesus because only Jesus can make you fit to pass through judgment. I think a lot of the time these days, we are worried about people judging us. We worry too much about what people think, but we don't spend enough time worrying about what a holy God knows to be true about us. We spend too much time worrying about what people think and assume about us instead of spending time worrying about what a holy and righteous God knows to be true about us. He knows us in our sin. All the sins that we don't even want to confess ourselves. You know the sins that I have these two? We're so ashamed of them that we don't even want to confess to ourselves that we deal with some of these sins, whether it's pride, arrogance, lust, uh, self-centeredness, you name it, whatever it might be, addiction. You have a sin, you don't even want to confess to yourself that you deal with it, let alone let other people know about it. These are the things that God already knows about you. They're the things that God already knows about me. And so often, we're not really concerned about how God sees us, what he knows to be true of us, because we're so concerned about what other people think about us. But what we really need to take seriously is what God knows to be true about us, because at the end of the day, no other human is going to judge you for eternity. No other human is going to make you stand before a throne and look at your life with an intense spotlight and look at every moment of your life, every thought that you've thought, every desire that you've nurtured in your heart and your mind. God will evaluate those. Who can stand before that judgment? That is a judgment that is coming. But the good news is because of what Jesus has done, we can pass through judgment and experience joy with God, our Heavenly Father, because of what Jesus has done. So we need to focus on what Jesus has done and remember that he makes it possible for us to pass through the judgment that really matters. And then secondly, place your hope in an unshakable kingdom that comes from an unchanging God. Place your hope in an unshakable kingdom that comes from an unchanging God. Has this, this last year not taught us more than probably any other year that there's little we can really count on in this life? that there's very little hope we can place in like building a lasting kingdom here on earth. There's so many things that can take away the little kingdoms that we build here on earth. Your money will go away or it will go to someone else at some point. Your career will go away at some point. For most of us, time and history will eventually forget us. My family, we were sitting around a family tree. Some, some wonderful family nerds uh, invested lots of energy in putting together a family tree that goes all the way back to the 1500s uh, for our family. And so we've got this huge chart. My dad laid it out on a table a few weeks ago. It was wonderful to look at it. But as I was reading through these names, I was like, there's scads of family members in my own bloodline that I don't even know. History has a way of causing us to be forgotten. 
You can't even place trust in your, in your memory. People remembering you in that lasting on. Your health will fade. Your spouse can be taken away. Your children can be taken away. Earthly comfort, comfort can and will be taken away. Your successes can be taken away in certain ways. No matter what kind of earthly kingdom you try to build here, it's only here for now. We need a lasting kingdom, and Jesus provides an everlasting hope, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And if we're placing our hope in this life, what we can build for ourselves here, we're missing out on the joy of a lasting kingdom that Jesus provides us by grace. And you have a place in that lasting kingdom because Jesus has paid for your sins. So I encourage you, place your faith in Jesus. Continue to place your faith in Jesus. If you start to put your faith in anything else, it'll fade. Right now, we're in a season where things start to feel like they're getting a little bit back to normal. And we're glad for that. Is anyone glad that feels like life is getting a little bit back to normal? But we might have the temptation in this season to say, okay, I can start putting my hope back in all of these earthly things. I can start putting a lot of my hope back in creature comforts, back in uh, the ability to have maybe some more job security, getting together with people. Those are good things. Let's praise God for those things. But let's remember that our ultimate hope is in an unshakable kingdom that Jesus has provided for us. And let's live for that kingdom. Let's take joy and hope in that kingdom, but let's also lay down our lives as we pursue that kingdom, right? Let's take joy in that kingdom that can only be uh, made available by grace, but is unshakable and unchanging. And it's an unchanging God that makes that available. The God who created the heavens and the earth is the one who will take us to an unshakable new heavens and new earth where nothing will fade away, but we'll have joy with the Lord forever as we stand in his presence with one another. That's good news. I'm going to pray as we close. I do want to ask you, stick around for just a quick minute after our prayer. I have an important announcement I want to share with you all from the church, but we're going to pray, and I want you to just stick around for a few uh, few quick minutes after that. Dear Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the message of Hebrews. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the fact that you are an unchanging God, and in your unchanging wisdom, you've not only remained holy and righteous and pure and good and true and beautiful, but in your unchanging nature, you've made an unchanging plan to send Jesus to die for our sins so that we could enjoy eternity with you forever, that we have an unshakable hope by grace. Help us to take joy in that. Help us, Lord God, to continue to trust Jesus, and help us, Lord God, to honor you with the lives that you've given us. May our lives be poured out to honor you and worship you and praise you as we look forward in hope and look forward in joy to the unshakable kingdom that we'll have with you by grace. Lord, I pray that you would also just be at work in us during a time where things start to feel like they're certain. Help us not to place our faith in other things. Help us to thank you for the good things that you're bringing back into our lives and praise you for that, but help us to always place our ultimate hope in Jesus and his unshakable kingdom. And as we find hope and joy in you, then use us for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.